All right. Think I'm live. <laughs> I've been doing this experimental delay with the stream to keep it from buffering so much. And uh, basically, it's making me not know exactly when it goes live or when it turns off. And there we go. So forgive me for that. But I do want to still do live streams. But anyhow, I'm Mike Winger, and I'm here to answer your questions about God, Christianity, the Bible, all that sort of thing. Um, and when I don't have an answer, I won't pretend I do, as you know. Um, I will just try to give you the best thoughts I've got on that topic for you to be stirred up in your own thoughts and your own thinking and to learn to think biblically about everything. That's where the treasure is. That's where the gold is. This is where our lives are changed. This is where our lives become pure, godly, more confident, more peaceful, more patient, and more joy. So thinking biblically about this question from number one from Hector de Santiago, who says in John 14, 12, Jesus said we would do even greater things than him. That's a tough pill to swallow since he died for our sins and created everything. How do I process Jesus' statement? Um, now, this is a, a, a an expansive question. It could get real big. I'm going to focus in on Hector's specific question, right? Um, how do I process the statement that we'll do greater things than Jesus? So there's other aspects in John 14, 12, which I'll show you guys. Let's see right here. Um, but we're not going to get into all of them, okay? Jesus says here, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Now, there's there's more, there's greater context. He says, he, he includes that prayer is an aspect of this, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, interesting, he will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So he, he's, we'll come back to this later, but there's like a, there's like a, a, a cool, thing happening here that is important for us as Christians, and, and it's part of our theology now, but we forget that it wasn't part of theology for all time, right? Jesus is teaching something new. So let's talk about this greater aspect. What are the greater works that we will do? Uh, this is often in hyper-charismatic circles. They'll take this concept and they will just run wild with it. You'll hear John 14, 12 quoted all the time at their conferences or in, when their speakers are, are talking and trying to sort of hype up the crowd. Um, now, I, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe that they can be active today. And I think that we, we're, we're biblically supposed to, we're taught in Scripture to have a positive attitude towards prophecy and healings and things like that, but to not be gullible about it either, to test all things and to hold fast what is good. We're, we're to have that attitude. Not, that's the attitude I want to have, okay? I'm not, I'm not a cessationist. Those who believe that the gifts have, at least there, there's some, okay, there's a variety of views within, right? But those who, who teach that, um, in the closing of the New Testament, that was the end of, generally speaking, of the work of God in the in the way of miracles in the church or through the church. And um, I think that that is not biblically supported. I think rather we're supposed to have a positive and hopeful attitude towards those types of things. I think that's the biblical teaching. So I'm not coming from that place of saying if you believe in the active work of miracles through the through the power of the Holy Spirit or someone speaking in tongues or offering a prophecy that you're automatically wrong new no, uh, I'm, I'm I'm in the category who thinks that those things are real but but I like many of you have been around what I would consider to be um, reckless and and sometimes hype based gifts environments. Where, where it's not about actually really seeing God work according to his will in the lives of people and do miracles, but where it's a little bit more about making, trying to, and this is my impression of things, but trying to get us to a point where we feel like we're part of a movement 
that has the power of the spirit. And that this is, this is the real goal. The end goal is to feel, not to actually see the real true work of God, but to feel feelings here, to feel that you're part of a movement that has the power of the spirit, not to actually be that, to feel that. That has been something that I've seen in my past and many of you have seen in your past as well. And so it's natural to react against that, but I don't want to overreact against that and disregard statements in scripture where Paul talks about prophecy and how important it is and how good it is. So the hyper charismatic side of things, Benny Hinn, right? Um, Kenneth Copeland, those guys and the people who, who are, are now taking up their mantles, um, Bill Johnson and, and Bethel and those, those other guys, their view is usually to hype things up and quote John 14, 12, greater works than these. We will do greater works than Jesus. And, and there's, and, and then they'll, they'll turn it into an end times prophecy. Have you noticed this? They'll say, um, there's going to be a greater works generation, but Jesus didn't talk about some end times, 2000 years later thing. He's, you know, so they're turning into this sort of thing that becomes about them and their movement in that moment, how they're on their way. The ball is rolling. The snowball is picking up speed and getting bigger and their congregation and their movement and whatever, you know, whichever one's talking, it's always their group that's on the verge, almost about to have these amazing greater works. So greater um, works than Jesus. Jesus walked on water. We'll do something that's a level higher than that. Jesus raised the dead. We'll do something even a level higher than that. Jesus did these things. I think that that is probably not what Jesus means here in John 14, 12. And you, you say, hey, you know, Hector, in your question, you say, uh, Jesus died for my sins. He also created everything. How do I do anything greater than Jesus? And that means quantitatively greater. Um, uh, I'm sorry, qualitatively greater. That, that the quality or the magnitude of the thing I'm doing is greater than Jesus. Now, we might say that Jesus is only talking not here about the creation of the world or even his death and resurrection. He's just talking about his works in like that scope of his three-year ministry, three plus three and a half year ministry. And maybe he's only he's only talking about those works because that's the topic at hand in John 14, where Jesus is going through the Gospel of John. He's doing various miracles, so that that's possible. Maybe maybe the creation of the world, and then after he says this, his death and resurrection, those are not part of the greater works comparison, and so that's possible. But let's talk about the works Jesus did do. So Jesus walked on water. What are we supposed to do that's qualitatively greater than that? Walk on air? <laughs> you know what I mean? It starts to be like what. It, what, what do you do that's greater than that? Jesus cast out demons. And now we get a theme in John, in John in particular, but in other gospel, in the other gospels as well. But it's, it's heavy in John, I think. And that is that Jesus didn't just do, say, cast out demons. He cast out demons out of a thousand people. Jesus didn't just raise the dead. He raised Lazarus after he was dead for four days and he was entombed and he was smelly or they, so they thought by this time he's going to be smelly. Of course, Jesus brought him back to life. But that is to say, Jesus didn't just do amazing works. He did like the, the highest quality of work. Qualitatively, he set the bar as high as it could be. So when Jesus feeds people, he doesn't just feed somebody food. He feeds thousands. He feeds 5,000 people bread, right? Like everybody there and they eat and they're full and there's leftovers. What do you do that's better than that? Well, I'm going to feed 10,000 people. And I'm thinking, I don't think we're getting the point. Jesus didn't just heal a guy that was blind. In the Gospel of John, he heals a man that is born blind. And it's a big point in the text that is inspired by the Spirit to try to communicate to us Jesus' qualitative work is unlike anyone else. He doesn't just cast out demons. He casts a thousand demons out of one guy. He doesn't just raise the dead, raise this guy that's been dead for four days. He doesn't just heal the blind. He heals a man who was born blind. And they're like, who's ever heard of such a thing? So what, 
are we going to do that's greater in kind or greater in quality than Jesus? Show me this, please, for those who preach this, who, who preach John 14, 12, like the hyper, more hyper Benny Hinn type guys. Um, they don't do these things, right? Their, their stuff, as most of us know, is a, sh a sham, right? They, he knocks people over with his jacket. He, he does these things that are embarrassment to the name of Christ. He does them in the name of Christ. They bring people over who, with wheelchairs. Um, they put people in wheelchairs who didn't need them. They bring them over along the side of the thing. And whoever sort of gets the adrenaline rush and feels like they can do things that maybe normally they can't do, then they get up on stage and they showcase their supposed miracle. But we don't really see them after the fact. We don't hear their testimonies a year later, how they're healed. This is hype. This isn't Jesus, uh, you know, duplicating the miracles of Jesus, but going a level higher. What we see from these guys is hype. Or they'll collect a few handful of stories that seem legit. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I don't know. And then they repeat these same handful of stories for 30 years. And they try to present that as though that's normal for their ministry and they're doing these things all the time. But their congregation's not doing it. They're not really doing it. What I'm suggesting here is the people who do tend to push this view the most loudly, the hyper-charismatics, I'm not just talking about charismatics in general, but Benny Hinn, those guys, um, they're not really doing these things. Those are, they're being deceptive because their end goal is hype. They just want to create a feel that they're part of a movement where powerful, powerful things are happening because that's the end result, that they're not going for healings, they're going for hype, and that's what they get. Um, that's my observation, okay, from many years of seeing these guys and slowly becoming, going from like a more gullible, younger Christian, going like, you know, here, look, they've got this, they're a ministry, they're on TV preaching and, you know, they're talking about God, all this stuff, and just trusting and then learning a little bit more and seeing a little bit more and reading the scripture more and checking the context of the things they teach. And then you, you get you get a different feeling <laughs> after time until you realize these are the frauds. These are the wolves in sheep's clothing. These are the, these are the ones Jesus warned about. Um, so what if it doesn't mean qu uh, qu quality of miracles, but it means quantity of miracles? Is that possible? Well, that, that word greater, it can mean that in Greek. It can actually mean quantity or number of things. And this is a possibility. I'll throw this out there. I'll give you two possibilities. Hector, for your consideration. Don't just take my word for it, but think it through. You know, it's the words of Jesus that are that are uh, unbreakable here. And, and it's my thoughts on those things that you're just considering. So Jesus, in this Gospel of John, in this section, John 14, 15, 16, 17, this is all like right before the crucifixion. And he's really focused on the fact that he's leaving the world because he'll die, he'll rise, and then he'll ascend. And he's passing the baton over to, to the disciples. They will continue the work. That's actually kind of an important thing. Since Jesus leaves the world and then they continue the work, the quantity of things that are done in the name of Jesus is, is exponentially greater than the things Jesus did while he was on the earth. Not the quality, but the number of things is much greater. That logically works really well with the theme of the Gospel of John. You tie in the book of Acts and you consider the fact that Jesus, he focused his ministry on Israel alone, but after his death and resurrection, he sends them out into all the world. So that, that, that Christianity then explodes. You know, in the book of Acts, in the first couple of years of the church, the gospel's reaching more people. More people become followers of Jesus than during the entire lifetime of Jesus. So is that greater in quality? Not, I, don't, I wouldn't quite put it that way. I would just say, no, no, it's the same kind of thing, but greater in quantity. So that may be the case. And, and this may be implied in the text because Jesus says, 
Why are they going to do greater works than, than these? Right? Because I'm going to the Father, right? Because I'm going to hand the baton off. It's not that you're going to take it to the next level miracles where you're like, I don't know, you're, you're, you're resurrecting a whole graveyard of people. Like, what, is that what you'd have to do? Like, Benny Hinn would have to go to the graveyard, Kenneth Copeland, and just be like, everybody get up. <laughs> and they all rise. I'd be like, well, that was a greater work. Um, but rather, it's because Jesus is like, I'm going to be gone. You're going to continue the work and it's going to exponentially grow. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but but you could push back and say, but Mike, that you know, when you look at Jesus or uh, John in the Gospel of John, the use of this word, this Greek word for greater, he pretty much every other time is using it to refer to some kind of qualitative difference. If that's your pushback, um, and uh, and maybe 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 you're right. Uh, I would lean towards this and have in the past. This is where I would lean towards quantity of works, not not quality. But it, there's another explanation if it's qualitative in nature. Okay, so here we go. Uh, this is a just one of the definitions of this same Greek word, megas. It's the same Greek word. Um, one of the definitions is that it may pertain to being relatively superior in importance. I pick on this definition, I grab it and use it because of what I'm about to share with you is there's another theme in the Gospel of John that may tie into this. And as you read John, Jesus is continually, all the way from chapter one, actually, it starts with John the Baptist doing it, but Jesus is continually trying to point out the greater importance of, of not of not miracles like miracles are in one category but there's another category of of things that is far more important and that's eternal salvation and specifically relates to the the holy spirit being in someone's life follow the logic here <clears throat> what if jesus means um oh yes the people who follow me will continue my work of even miracles okay but don't don't turn into this benny hen garbage but it will continue and we will look for that but we're not going to be like counting and saying, like, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to do miracles every time. Uh, uh, that's not what I'm getting from scripture. But then there's a greater thing that they're going to do, which is related to the Holy Spirit being, uh, well, basically entering into people's lives. As you preach the gospel, people get saved and they receive the Spirit. And that is a greater thing. And now they're sealed with the Spirit. Now they're part of the eternal kingdom and they have eternal life. And that is greater than raising the dead physically alone. That is greater than walking on water. That is greater than feeding the 5,000. And that's a theme in John. Let's look at this. In John 4, there's the woman at the well. And she's like, hey, give me some water so I don't have to come here to drink. And Jesus goes, I'm, I would give you something better than that if you asked me. Living water. And then you would never die. Right? That there be some sort of uh, physical, tangible thing, which miracles are almost always providing a tangible, physical effect. But instead, here's what's better is the living water that would flow up from within you, which we know connects to the Holy Spirit as well. That's in John uh, 4.14. Actually, let me let me show it to you and follow my little, uh, my, my argument here, my, my, my logic, and see if you agree. Um, so Jesus says uh, to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Yeah, that would be a secondary thing, a lower miracle thing. If I just provided water for you so you didn't have to go to the well, like a miraculous water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's uh, works that I do, like, say, providing water, providing bread, that kind of thing. But then there's a greater work, and that is this sort of work of the Holy Spirit entering someone's life. Uh, let me read on. Uh, so in, in chapter 5, Jesus feeds the 5,000. But right after this, there's a theme 
where they want to come back and they want to ask him to feed him again, feed them again. And Jesus is like, no, I have something so much better for you. That, that miracle of 5,000 being fed, there's a greater thing, a qualitatively greater thing that I want to, that I want to do for you. I want to give you, but it's not about the kind of miracles you're thinking of. So the crowd saw that Jesus was not there. He left after feeding. All, all the people, they themselves uh, got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, meaning they didn't get what happened, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, meaning you want more food. <laughs> they just want to keep following him for free food and want to see another miracle. It's exciting. It's it's hypey, right? But But there's something more important. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to do the works, to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. What do you have to do? Believe in him who he has sent. Then there's that greater thing, greater than the physical miracles, greater than those, which is eternal kingdom stuff, salvation itself. Now you might be like, well, but wait, Mike, Jesus preached salvation. The disciples preached salvation. Qualitatively, it's the same, but there's actually a qualitative difference. And I'll tell you about that in just a second. So they said to him, then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I'm laughing because they're like, huh? Food? We want more food. Make us more food. Do food miracle, Jesus. Now, they're not just hungry. There's also a sense of hype about miracles where they're like, we want to see that amazing thing happen again. This time I brought my brother maybe, and I want him to see it too. But they're getting focused on the on the physical things when Jesus is only using those as a tool to point to the spiritual things. That's the greater stuff in the Gospel of John, in particular, is emphasized. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven, redirecting them to, to trusting in him for salvation. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. This is the greater thing, okay? Um, that's, again, it's a theme in John. Um, we also see, so the bigger issue is eternal life. We also see this with John the Baptist in chapter one, when he says, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me whose who's sandals are not even worthy to untie. He's greater than me. He's going to baptize you. There's this greater concept with the Holy Spirit. This filling of the Holy Spirit, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit is possibly tied to what the greater works are that the disciples are going to do, qualitatively greater. Because many people believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry and they receive forgiveness of sins. And he tells the, he heals the paralytic, right? Remember this? He heals a guy who's paralyzed. And before he heals him, he just says, you're forgiven. He sees their faith and says, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Then to prove he can forgive sin, the way it's written is really important. He then says, now get up and walk. I will prove that I can forgive you. But the greater thing was the forgiveness, not the get up and walk stuff. But the thing we're focused on usually is the physical miracle. Again, salvation, eternal kingdom stuff is greater than just carrying on miracles. So what's qualitatively different is the Holy Spirit. When, when Jesus shows up and he does all these miracles, and even though forgiveness is preached, the Holy Spirit is not indwelling people. Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit in this same section of John 14, where this thing is about greater works. We have Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit, John 14, 15, 16. And 
talking about how the Holy Spirit's going to enter into them. And then that is going to be a new thing. And that may be the new thing. So um, let me just check my notes here to make sure I'm not forgetting something. Um, if that's the case, again, then death and resurrection of Christ are not in view, Hector, and neither is creation. He's just talking about kind of the earthly ministry thing. The preaching of the gospel is the greatest thing we do. It's greater after the death of Christ than before because now, and I'll give you a few reasons, uh, the localities is, is more broad. It's not just Israel, but it's around the world. Um, the information is more thorough. It's not just there, you know, just trust in Messiah. He will save you somehow, but rather it's now we know the death and resurrection of Christ. Now we've seen the love of God manifest. So there's a greaterness to the preaching of the gospel now, but there is the Holy Spirit. That is a layer of this. That's really, I think, important for us to grab. And maybe that is the meaning here in John 14, 12. I would, I waffle in my head a little between those two options. Quant, uh, quantitatively, every, you know, believers in general are doing more works than the works of Jesus because we carry on that work for 2,000 years so far. Um, qualitatively, anytime you preach the gospel to someone and they get saved and the Holy Spirit in, seals them and indwells them, this is greater than any of the things that Jesus had done while he was on earth. Now, you're not really doing it. God's doing it. But it, you've, we've moved into a greater thing. This is why Jesus is like, hey, John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets, but he who's least in the kingdom of heaven is what? Greater than John. It has to do with the Holy Spirit. Um, so, yes. Then we get to um, one more text I'll share with you in John 7. And then we'll go to the next questions we have for today. So here it says, <clears throat> On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus speaking of that, that, that Holy Spirit entering into people's lives and as it being water. So this connects it to Jesus' statements to the woman at the well in John 4. Um, but look at the context of verse 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were future to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John 7 here may be connecting to John 14. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go away. You're going to continue my work, but you'll do something even greater because it's going to be involving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. That would be to me the other option. Um, in which case the phrase greater works is not about miracles at all. It's about preaching the gospel. And it's trying to get people to focus on the most important mission, which is people finding salvation through Jesus. Because I'll tell you what, you can heal somebody of maybe their cancer, but they're still going to die one day. You can heal them of whatever bondage they've got going on in life, but they're still going to suffer death and stand before God in judgment one day. But when they come to salvation, they're given the Holy Spirit, they're sealed, they're born again, they have eternal life in Christ. And no matter what they go through in life, it pales in comparison. Like Paul said, it's, it's not worthy to even be compared. The sufferings of this present time, they're not even comparable to the joys and the glory of eternal life. So it's the greater thing. It's what we need to focus on as well. Anyway, Hector, I hope those those are two options that both work a lot better than the, the typical word of faith approach that I've heard. And um, yeah, something to think about. Let's go to question number two. We've got, let's see here. We're actually full up on questions. We've got all 20 questions already. And I'll start with number two here. So Grace Irwin says in 2 Samuel 12, 8, God says that he gave David his wives, multiple, as if he had asked for more 
God would have given him more. This sounds to be directly saying that God would be endorsing polygamy. How should we as Christians feel about one man having multiple wives according to the Bible specifically in this passage? Um, let's look at this passage together here. 2 Samuel 12, 8. I'm going to back up a little bit. So Nathan said to David, you are the man. Um, okay, the, those of you who know the story, you already know, well, that was the, that's the big reveal. David, in the, in the short version, right? David sleeps with Bathsheba. She's another man's wife. She's married. Then he arranges to have that man killed. Why? Because Bathsheba's pregnant and he's going to be discovered. Because she's gonna, they're gonna know, you know, his her husband Uriah was out of town when she became pregnant. Because they'll, they'll just count the days and go, oh, uh oh. So he has Uriah killed. He has the army withdraw. They go to the front lines and they withdraw and leave Uriah there. This was a conspiracy to to murder him. It was the worst possible thing. Uh, Nathan then comes to David and tells him a story about a man who stole a sheep, stole another man's sheep, even though he had a bunch of sheep of his own. And David gets infuriated. He's like, that man deserves to die which was not the normal punishment for that. But but the thing is, Nathan's story triggered something in David where his sense of justice was just like really inflamed. And he goes, that's wrong. That was so horrible. And then David gets to this experience where Nathan turns and says, David, that story, it's about you. And it's not sheep. It's his wife. You, you took his wife. You killed the man. And so David says, you're the man, David. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. So two questions I have here. Uh, I'll start with this. The, I'll do, I guess, the first one first. Second one, second. one um, what was David's relationship with Saul's wives? And two, when it says, if this were too little, I would have added to you more. If God, God would have given him more, does that imply he's going to give him more wives? And I think that the answer to the first question helps us with the second one. David, um, I gave you your master's house. So that was Saul's house and your master's wives into your arms. That may seem to the way it's worded. You might be thinking like, oh, so he was like sexual with them. David never did anything sexual with Saul's wives. It was typical um, that, you know, you take the, if you take over someone's kingdom, that you take their wife and you, and you're trying to legitimize yourself in your reign. David didn't actually do that. He didn't sleep with Saul's wives at all. So there was no He didn't marry them either. They didn't become his wives. So this actually isn't, to my knowledge, this is no example of polygamy. And, um, and I'll look more into this later to refresh my myself on it. If I'm remembering something wrong, I'll come back and tell you guys. But yeah, not, not actually an example of polygamy to start with. So that, that's an interesting thing. Um, then it says, if this were too little, I would have added you more. This isn't to say, oh, I would have, you know, just given you lots, lots more women. And that God's offering like, hey, you guys want some ladies? I'll give you some ladies. Like, I don't think that we should take it that way. I think that what God is saying is you were a shepherd. You were this like nobody effectively. And I lifted you up and I gave you this position that you have now abused to steal this other man's wife. So there actually is a statement in scripture where kings are specifically told in Deuteronomy not to multiply wives, that it's a rule because it was typical, especially back then, that people would uh, marry, uh, a king would marry lots of women for probably two reasons. One, they're trying to consolidate power. So they, you know, they would say, I'm going to marry the daughter of that king over there. Hey, well, I can consolidate more power if I marry the daughter of another king over there. 
and another one over there, another one over there. And so they're consolidating power through political marriages. And the other reason is because kings are men. And for obvious reasons, car- carna- carnal men want to push polygamy and want to have lots of wives. And men who are sort of on the top rung of the social ladder are more inclined to be able to do that, right? They can afford it. And then they can also draw in and attract these women. And then, you know, their families think they're going to get favors for it and stuff. So they're basically seeking to appease their pride and their sexual urges. Um, that being said, God told the kings of Israel not to multiply wives. Like, isn't that, isn't that an interesting reality? Specifically commanded them not to do that. So I think that those things flavor my understanding of, of 2 Samuel 12. David didn't marry them or sleep with them. And um, and then I would have added you more. Like God is saying, you were discontent with the things that I provided for you. That's the problem here is that God's given you so much. And, and there's a lesson here for us, I think, in this. Discontent, it can be, you know, the cause The cause of it can be tied to like, boy, my life is really rough right now. Where I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm like missing basic, basic needs in my life. And that may be the case, but there's also a discontent that is simply the, um, the nature of the flesh in that it will never be satisfied. It will never be, it'll never be enough. Proverbs says the eye of man is never satisfied. We, we never have enough. We never get enough. And so this is a warning to us and a reminder to us that even here, David, at the apex of power with his, the kingdom that God has provided and set him over and all this other stuff, he's then like, you know, over, look at over there. Look at that lady over there. And he's, we're this way too. You will not stop the, 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 the itch of sin by scratching it. You will only increase it. At some point, you just simply have to learn to die to yourself and say, I will learn to be content with what I have. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians. He goes, I've learned to be content. Not I knew how, not I know how, I learned how, right? By having a little, he learned how to have a little. But when you have a lot, you got to learn how to have a lot too. When you have a lot of supplies, when you have more money than you need, you need to learn how to deal with that in a way that's godly so that it doesn't lead you towards these types of sins. Anyway, that's some thoughts on that. Let's go to the next question. Question three, Terry DeFillo, DeFillo says, in 2 Timothy 3.16, was Paul speaking of only Old Testament scriptures since that's all they had at the time? What about the inspiration of the New Testament? Thanks. I love the ministry God gave you. I'm learning so much. Thanks, Terry. That's wonderful. Um, makes me happy <laughs> to hear you say you're learning so much. Uh, praise the Lord. I'm very happy about that. Okay, so let's look at 2 Timothy 3.16. I've heard this argument before. And usually it's presented, maybe not always, but when I've heard it, it's been presented by people who are trying to like um, uh, devalue something about the Bible, like the New Testament in particular. They want to maybe devalue it, um, like suggest that it's not all really inspired of God. Or they, what they want to do is they want to elevate some other tradition, maybe some later traditions, church councils and, and um, that vague... <laughs> That vague category of, you know, the the universal teaching of the of the Roman Catholic Church or that sort of thing, or the or the sometimes unhistorical statements that even sometimes forgive me, you guys, I'm just being straight with you here, that Orthodox believers will say about what the church has always believed and how that tradition is supposed to be authoritative. Um, that that sort of thing, I, I I've heard some people, not all, not maybe not even most, but just some people say this about Second Timothy three sixteen. 
where it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped or equipped for every good work. Now, this is interesting. It's a statement about the nature of scripture and the sufficiency or the effect of scripture. Okay. And this is why some would want to sort of lower the extremeness of the statement. So here it says that scripture is one. It's God is breathed by God. It's, it's theonoustos is the Greek. It's like literally theo God, right? Noustos breath. It's God has inspired it. It's not that God authored scripture. It's that the people who wrote the scripture, they wrote it by the work by the work of God, like the, the Holy Spirit worked through them to make sure that what was written was exactly what God wanted. So that this is not just a collection of man's writings. This is God's book, right? The, the, the scripture is God's, God's writings um, via man, through man, but he inspired him, them to do it. And it's profitable. It has an effect, the impact of scripture. It's profitable for several things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, all of those things. And then it has an effect, a result on people, that the man of God may be complete, mature, full-grown, equipped for every good work, meaning that there's like a sufficiency of Scripture for Christians that you it's hard for you to tell me that for the faith, for my obedience to Jesus, and for my trust in Jesus, for my completeness, for me to be mature, that I need something other than the Bible. I mean, obviously you need dictionaries to learn language. You need, you need things like that. You need, you need food in order to like get nutrients to grow and survive. We're talking about you being ready for every good work as a Christian. You don't need something more than the Bible. Really? That's, that's powerful. Now God uses teachers. I'm not suggesting you just go and run away with you, you and your Bible and you isolate from the body of Christ. But all of the things even teachers give you, it's going to stem from the text of scripture, right? It's going to be the Bible central to my growth and maturity as a Christian. Okay, that being said, all of that, all of that said, for those who want to say, no, you also need tradition. You also need this. You also need that. Uh, that's going to be a challenge because of the nature of what we read in the scripture, in this text. But what does all scripture mean? Maybe all scripture just means the Old Testament. Because at the time Paul's writing this, he's in the first century. Like Paul's writing First Timothy, he's probably never read Revelation. Probably hasn't been written yet. That's interesting. How much of even the Gospels were written down at this point in time? That's a that's an open question. Okay, as as, as he's writing here, Second Timothy. How much of Scripture is included in this verse when it says all Scripture? Well, the, to answer this question, we need to try to think of what does Paul mean when by the phrase all Scripture? Does he mean all of the things that I'm currently aware of that are Scripture, or? Does Paul mean everything that is in the category of scripture? And I think it's the second one. If Paul means only the things I'm aware of, then it limits this passage in two ways. It would say, okay, Genesis, Exodus, Genesis through, you know, all of Malachi, all the Old Testament, that is all inspired of God. Paul might be aware of certain other specific letters that he's written or others have written. Um, maybe, maybe Mark's gospels this early. Um, and he's aware of those things and he's like, that's scripture too. Okay. Maybe he's, he would say that in which case we would then try to figure out which of the new Testament to include in this. Now, do you feel like this is like, Paul would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> you get that sensation. What are you doing? Why are you chopping up God's inspired word in two categories? what's actually scripture and what you will consider scripture based upon the timeline you think from when I wrote this passage. That would be an odd thing. 
However, if Paul's speaking of Scripture as a category, then he's simply saying everything that is inspired Scripture, whether it's written now, whether it's written later, whether it's being written at the moment, all of it is inspired by God as a category. That's the nature of what it means to be Scripture, is that it's inspired by God. That, I think, is the answer. So we, we don't need to worry about trying to like get the calendars out and try to figure out when each text was written and then figure out which ones Paul is aware of at the time. And you know, I think that that's a waste of time. All scripture as a category. Um, so Peter refers, in Second Peter, he refers to Paul's writings as scripture. That's crazy to think that, that really that early he does that. And he, he says of Paul's writings, he talks about some, some specifics and how some of them are hard to understand. And people twist them as they do all the the rest of scripture, meaning that Paul's in that category of scripture. Um, yeah, so we're, we're talking about everything that is scripture. Now, here's an interesting thing where me, Roman Catholic, and an Orthodox person would agree is that um, scripture is the Bible. Now, they'll some of them will want to add other books to the text, to the list of what we have as canon that I would disagree on. But they would agree that scripture refers to this written stuff. And then... Um, Tradition is a different category than scripture. And so on that, I would say, yeah, uh, we have an agreement there that, that I find useful for my for my theological point, <laughs> at least. And uh, yeah, that's how I'd answer that question. Let's go to question number four. Uh, Sibony Woods says, Hi, Mike. One of your videos gave my fiance a change of heart. He's a former JW and feels like he has to start over and unlearn, then relearn everything. Where do you suggest we start studying? Sibony, um, first off, like, I'm, thank God, I'm so grateful to God that your fiance found my content and that it helped him in that way. Like, my heart breaks for people who are part of a twisted religious group, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and, and Latter-day Saints or Mormonism, um, or part of a cult like the Mother God cult, because I've talked to them many times and I just see how many layers of confusion and deception even when they leave the group, even when they know the group's wrong, they still carry with them all kinds of confusion. And it just, it breaks my heart. Like my heart goes out. Like that would be so hard to go through. I'm sorry, um, but I'm grateful, you know, that that the content has helped him in some way. Where do I suggest you start? Well, I think that um, the tendency will be for someone who's part of a religious group like that these groups always have a go-between. They've always got something other than just the text of Scripture that's going to guide you, guide and teach you. This is how they twist the, the Word of God to teach you things that aren't, aren't biblical. Is There's always um, basically a go-between, an interpreter, a translator of all of these verses, what it really means. Here's the verse, here's what it really means. And the natural thing to do after you've experienced that is to, is to think, I just have to find a better go-between. Mike will be my go-between. He'll explain all the texts of Scripture to me. And... You don't want that, okay? You, It's okay to have teachers, but you need to be the one presiding and using good judgment and not just finding um, people who will sort of re-indoctrinate you into a new system of understanding the text of Scripture. You need to develop the skill of reading the text in context. This is the most important thing you could possibly do. Read the Bible verse by verse in context so you can just understand it. Now, this can be really hard at first because you don't realize how long you've been cherry picking verses and understanding things out of context. You've never read the Gospels straight through to just really follow the context. You've read them 
to affirm teachings. I have a list of 50 Jehovah's Witness teachings. And as I read the text, I find verses that confirm those teachings. I'm not really understanding the Bible here. I'm just finding things that I would cherry pick. It's a treasure hunt. It's looking for confirmation of indoctrination I've already received. Instead, what you want to do is you want to open the text and just read it as it is and say, what did it mean when it was originally written? What did it mean to that original audience? That is something I try to do with, with, with my Bible studies, of course, so I could be a teacher, but I don't want to be the guru or the new go-between or the new, the new um, governing body telling you what, what exactly you need to believe about every text. But rather, this is my ministry's goal is to help you learn to think biblically about everything. Not learn what Mike thinks about the Bible, <laughs> but learn to process it yourself. So th this would be my encouragement is that be patient is another encouragement. Don't feel like you have to have answers to all the questions. Just start to learn and absorb. If you're going to go read Philippians, just go try and read what's there and figure out what Paul was trying to say and um, why the Holy Spirit inspired it to be written that way. What is the meaning here and there? Um, another thing with Jehovah's Witnesses is get a good translation. I, I recommend for you generally not to use the King James, although there, it's, it is a good translation for the time. It's very much, it's like when you watch Shakespeare, you've got to be like, wait, what are they saying? It's just challenging for modern people. And I think that newer translations like the ESV um, would, would give you a better just a better updated scholarship on the on the the best reading the more most likely reading of a passage so you're like well which one goes in the text and versus a footnote that's or it could be this like i want to have the most likely one in the text i think that say the esv is pretty good at that yeah yeah be patient be patient 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 and it's okay if a year from now you're reading and you suddenly go wait a minute this, that's not true. There's the thing that I've been thinking this whole time. I didn't know that was just from Jehovah's Witness teaching, but it's been in my head. I just saw that it's not biblical. But the, and the reason why I counsel patience here is because if you rush to try to get right, perfect theology on every issue, then you're, you're going to be more likely to make rash and quick decisions and move into, you're basically going to be bouncing around from one weird idea to another. That's a danger for someone who's gone through those things. The last thing I'll encourage you with is this, and I, I've only learned this from experience, um, and that is when you've been misled and when you've been lied to by an organization, especially a religious group, it can be very tempting to isolate. And while I don't want you to have these gurus who become the know-it-alls for everything where you're not really reading the Bible for yourself, but you're just sort of trusting everything they say about it. Um, I also don't want you to go the other way, which is to think I'm only safe with me. I'm only safe with myself because this I've seen too, where some even specifically Jehovah's Witnesses, I know about a, a particular couple that went through this. And from my perspective, what it looked like was they they grew to distrust the Jehovah's Witnesses, but then that distrust they had for the for that organization carried forward into every organization and every group until they felt like they could only sort of isolate, be on their own, craft their own theology based upon what felt safe and felt good and that led them down another dangerous path so that now they were no longer being deceived by Jehovah's Witnesses, but now they were being deceived by themselves. It was so sad to see it. And uh, then they, they they had basically, not rudely, but they cut off connection with me too because, again, they, don't, they just were like, we don't trust anybody. We're just going to sort of create our own religious views based on how we feel. We follow our gut out of Jehovah's Witnesses. We're going to follow our gut into something else. And your gut just isn't that reliable. So I'd be cautious about that. Uh, be patient. The one thing that I would 
hope hope you are still anchored solidly in is that all scripture is breathed by God, right? And it is profitable. Like when we go back to this text, it's still on the screen here. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that, that you, the man of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let the word of God do its work in you. Pray the Holy Spirit gives you wisdom. Okay, let's do uh, number five. Theology Ponderer says, How can Christ truly be God and man at the same time, infringing the laws of logic? If it's true, I know I can't understand it fully, but I do expect to be able to demonstrate how it isn't illogical. Okay, um, I guess I am uh, I might be at a loss to help you as fully as I'd like to on this question because I'm not sure what you see as being illogical about it. Like, it seems as though maybe for you it feels obvious that Jesus being God and man is illogical. But to me, it's not obvious, so I'm not, this, which is unfortunate, at least for, for one thing, which is it makes it harder for me to address an issue that I'm not understanding as well. Um, so let me just talk through it a little bit, and I hope, I pray, God uses something I say to turn a light on for you in some positive way. Um, so a, a basic, like a real logical contradiction would be like saying Jesus is God, and then saying Jesus isn't God. Or Jesus is man, and Jesus isn't man. That seems like a straightforward contradiction, like that's logically impossible, but I don't see any inherent contradiction with saying Jesus is God and Jesus is man. Now, biblically speaking, the way that this happens is almost you could think of it like layers. <laughs> Jesus is God from all eternity. He was not always man. Then he took on human form. So God, who's still God, he takes on, inhabits, uses, and identifies himself with a human body and not just a human body, but whatever represents humanity, all of all of what a human is, is included in that. So Jesus is truly human. Now he's he's not only human, he's human and more, a lot more, because he's also God and I'm not that. So there's a sense in which he has something to him that no other human has. He's more than a human. So if I, so here'd be, a, here'd be a contradiction. Jesus is only God and Jesus is only human. There's a contradiction. Or Jesus is God and Jesus is only only human that that phrase only that exclusivity that would be a problem logically speaking but jesus is god and man he's truly god and truly man there's no contradiction there because all that whatever makes up humans okay so i have a human uh body and a human whatever else i've got right like i i and i'm a little agnostic on this i don't know all that makes up a human what what is the nature of my soul spirit and things like that but whatever i've got that makes me human jesus has those qualities too is there any reason why, logically, why God couldn't take on those qualities? No. He could do that. As long as he's not only that. He's still God. So Jesus was still God walking the earth. He, he never ceased being God at any point. I'll say, too, that some people confuse people on the nature of Jesus only because I think of a poorly, a very common but poor way, in my opinion, of stating the nature of Jesus. They'll say he's 100% God and 100% man. When you say he's 100% God and 100% man, isn't that very similar to saying Jesus is only God and only man? Because 100% of, of Jesus is God? 100% of Jesus is man? That, okay, this percentage language does not occur in scripture. <laughs> this is something that people just say. And I think what they mean by it, and the good thing is they mean Jesus is really God. He's 100% God. He's like really God. I think that's what they mean. Jesus is really man, 100% man, really man. Um, and maybe we we do this with something when we're like, dude, I'm 100% on board with you. 
Like what we mean by that isn't like any, any literal sense. We're just using the phrase hundred percent to mean like really, really. <laughs> and so in that sense, I'd agree with it. Jesus is really God and really man, but he's not a hundred percent. So now he's 200%, a hundred percent of him is God and a hundred percent of him is man. And that, that, okay. That it seems like a logical contradiction, but that's just clumsy modern humans having not really worked through what they say versus what they mean. And, and what do they mean by those words? Um, this is why I avoid the percentage language and I say, like like the old creeds do, right? Jesus is truly God and truly man. I don't see any contradiction there. I don't think there's anything for us to uh, correct or deal with. And I hope that helps you out. If it doesn't, uh, what I'd encourage you to do is try to spell out in as clear words as possible, even written, even written down, what exactly is the contradiction that you think exists here. And once you see it crystallized and clear, maybe you'll be able to work through it more. There's lots of people who've done philosophical work on the nature of, of Jesus and, um, and theological work on the nature of the, the humanity and deity of Jesus. And maybe look into those works because this is a massive topic. It's hugely important. But the Bible absolutely teaches it. Jesus was truly man. Like, it absolutely teaches that, and it absolutely teaches Jesus was God. So that that's not a question. It's just perhaps you working through your, your understanding of those issues. Really hope that helps you. Um, all right, Jeff White says, or Weed or White says, Mike, what do you tell your kids about Santa? Ooh, oh, a strangely volatile question. Is there a chance that kids who find out Santa isn't real might think the same about Jesus? Will you spoil Santa for children that aren't yours? All right, let me let me separate the Santa issue into a few topics. One, it'll ruin your faith. That that or will it ruin your faith? Right. That that topic. That's a separate question. Then there's a separate issue that I'm more on board with, which is that is not true. <laughs> this is moving towards the realm of bold-faced deception for the sake of your own entertainment, but it's deception. It's not play, which is different. Kids know play. Play's fun. Play's good. Play. I'm going to be a monster attacking you, but you're not actually convincing your kid you're really a monster attacking them, right? That, that That's play. This is just bold-faced deception, in my opinion. Um, and then maybe a third category we could say, which is um, a, a category um, of replacement. Okay, let me come back to that one. How is Santa replacement, that issue? So first off, does Santa cause people to lose their faith? Sometimes it does cause the unbreaking of a dam where, and I, and I know there's testimonies. I've, I've, I actually asked on Twitter, oh, long, I think it was on Twitter a long time ago. I just asked whoever followed me there. Um, hey, when you, those of you who were taught that there was a Santa Claus, that he was real and all that, when you found out there wasn't, how did that affect you? I was just curious. And I'd seen a variety of responses. Some people said this was like, totally made me question everything about God. Because somehow the, the, the concept of Santa and the, their belief in that felt similar uh, when, they, when, they, when they stopped believing that to their belief in God. Now, it's not for me, okay? And it shouldn't be because your reasons for believing in Santa versus your reasons for believing in God are radically different. And anybody who goes, if you still believe in God, you may as well believe in Santa. Like, this is, this is a, a very shallow faith. It's, it's a faith that's not, it's, it's responsive merely to, um, I, believe, I believe in God because... You know, people around me say so instead of like, I look around and I perceive the na that God's been revealed through creation. I look at fulfilled prophecy or I consider the resurrection of Jesus or I see the work of God in my own life. Like Santa ain't got nothing like that on, on, on me. So that's strange, but it does happen in some cases. I don't think it's the majority. I don't think it's common. Think of it like a medication someone takes. 
and they go, in rare cases, there's this side effect. I think that there, in rare cases, there's the side effect of people abandoning their faith, at, at least appearance-wise, saying, I don't know about this whole God thing. That's a concern, okay? That even a rare side effect is still a side effect, okay? So that is a concern, but I would not want to project that onto everybody. I think most people who believe in Santa as a kid, it has no impact on their beliefs about God and religion, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Plenty of us had believed things that were not true that our parents told us, maybe because they thought it was true. This, why would this affect my belief in God? It shouldn't, um, but in some cases it does. Okay, the second issue is that of it's just a deception. Um, telling your kids, we're going to pretend there's a Santa Claus, that would be one thing, but deceiving them, I know it's common. Okay, and every argument against the deception thing, well, let me put it this way, a lot of the arguments against me here, um, like I said, it's volatile, would be, um, this, that's not a problem. And you're really thinking it's not a problem because we always do that. And we've always done that. And for generations, we've done that. So how could it be a problem? You're basically insulting my grandma by saying this, Mike. And I'll be like, well, your grandma's not as perfect as you think anyways. But more to the point, we have always done this is not an argument against it being deceptive and deceptive in a significant way. If I were to tell kids, we're going to pretend there's a there's there's a there's a jolly fat dude who's going to bring you presents and he flies in a reindeer and all this stuff and they want to partake in a game that would be you could have the fun of it but without the deception but parents get a delight when their kids really believe that noise on the roof is santa claus and they laugh at their kids and they get a delight out of it. And part of it is them feeling like maybe they could recapture their own sort of youth when they were dumb enough to believe such things. <laughs> um, and and I, I think that this whole thing is is mixed with a level of deception that is unhealthy and that is um, not, not appropriate. Is it the worst thing in the world? No. Does it mean they're a bad parent? No, I didn't say that. I think this was, this was a bad act, uh, in my opinion. But it's a bad act that's layered with so much sugar and spice and everything nice and and presents and jolly saint nick it's, it's layered with so much sort of surface level goodness that it feels like it's fine but at the core it's a very deceptive thing okay but then there's a, a third issue so i couldn't do that i could not just bold-faced lie to my kids about things like that i want to raise responsible thoughtful intelligent adults i would not lie to my kids about anything like that and just deceive them, just let them live in fantasy worlds where I just lie to them because it entertains me and it makes them excited, artificially excited about things that aren't true. Like this does not seem healthy to me in any way. You can uh, you can send me your letters, <laughs> P.O. Box, something or other. <laughs> you can message us on the website of how wrong I am, but you better make it, you better explain why and not just be mad at me or I'm gonna ignore you. Um, okay, so. The, the third thing is um, replacement. Santa, and this is something I, I feel as strongly about, Santa replaces Jesus as the center of the holiday. This is t not every case, certainly not in every case, in purposeful families who are intent about the resurrection, the death, the, the life, the incarnation of Christ, and they care about these things and they want to instill these truths in their kids, and they're true, they're not deceptions. Um, they can do this and they maybe even have a layer of a Santa thing going on and they hope that the two don't get muddied together and all this. But for the most part, in most homes, Santa has replaced the emphasis on Jesus. Jesus is a footnote. Santa is the, is the, is the 
you know, he's the headline. He's the star of the show. Um, that's obviously wrong and bad, right? Because Christmas, if it means anything, it's a celebration of Jesus, his incarnation, God saving the world through, through his son, sending his son because he loves us so much. This is a great opportunity to preach the truth of Christ, to center people on eternal and important things. But instead, what we have is miracle on 34th Street and these heartwarming surface level good things that are a replacement for what we truly need, which is Jesus, right? We need Jesus. We know not just as a, as a cutesy baby, but as the incarnate God of all creation coming into the weakness of humankind to bear our sin, to live perfectly, that we might have salvation from death that is chasing us down every day until it finally catches us in our lives. It couldn't be more important and distracting us from that with Santa Claus seems like a big mistake in my opinion. And here, um, like I said, there's probably rare cases or uncommon cases where the whole Santa deception causes people to disbelieve or doubt their faith in Christianity and God. Um, and it shouldn't, but then there's probably, it's probably reversed. Probably in most cases, a focus on Santa equals uh, devaluing, de-emphasis and a lowering importance or even completely replacing Jesus as the center of the concept of Christmas seeking to focus on the incarnation. There's my answers on that. Um, I think our culture is wrong here, big time wrong. And commercially, obviously commercially, you're not going to sell as much stuff if you focus on Jesus. But if you focus on Santa, you can. So money is driving it to get even bigger. There you go. Okay, number seven. <clears throat> we got all 20 questions, just a reminder. RJ Klein asks, I'm a Calvinist, and recently I have been noticing semi-Pelagian theology in Arminian churches. Can you distinguish between the two and explain why we should avoid semi-Pelagianism? I'm probably not going to give you a, a really satisfactory answer for two reasons. One is I don't know quite enough about this topic. And two, I probably approach it in a very different way conceptually, like I'm, I'm looking at it from a different angle. Um, and that is, I don't like the phrase semi-Pelagian, and I think it's a loaded phrase that is usually... When I've seen it used, and I could be wrong here, I'm open to learning and growing, usually used very wrongly, in my opinion. What I understand about this, oh, for the background, so you guys know, <clears throat> um, the story is Augustine had this whole fight with this dude, Pelagius, and um, there are different theological understandings of the nature of man, and can man work, uh, basically, what, what, let me just say, there's like this, historically, people are like, hey, there's an ancient heresy that Augustine battled with Pelagius. Okay, I don't really, I would like to know more about that, what Pelagius actually taught and exactly where the lines were drawn and understand that better because it's a little foggy to me. Um, but what they'll say is modern version, what we're watching out for is not just Pelagian heresy, which usually people identify as someone thinking they can work for their salvation. Mankind is sort of inherently good enough to just do good things to work for salvation. Um, was that what Pelagius taught? I'm not sure. But that's often what moderns will mean when they say, hey, that's Pelagian. And I'm like, yep, dude, that is that is heresy then. You're going to work, you're going to merit your own salvation. That's a serious, dangerous heresy. Jesus alone saves and faith in him involves faith that he's the one doing it, not you. And so faith in self to merit salvation mixed with faith in Jesus, you got to be like, is it even faith in Jesus now? Or have I lost grace because I turned it into works? And that's a scary thing. 
Then enters semi-Pelagianism. Now, semi-Pelagianism, I usually hear it used because someone's like, what you're doing isn't exactly works for salvation, but you're doing something that's like work-ish-ish. And so I'm going to call it semi-Pelagian. And then by tying it to an ancient heretical view, it's like, whoa, I, I sort of really raise the alarm. I make it into a giant issue. Um, so what is identified as semi-Pelagian if you really look at the details? And here's a more modern thing that I've seen, and that is, I, not that it never happened before, but I, I see it happening currently online, I'll put it that way, where someone says something like, oh, I don't believe in uh, total depravity, the Calvinist doctrine of total depravity or total inability, which is a teaching that mankind, um, among other issues, Yes, we're depraved. Yes, we're all fallen to sin. Yes, we absolutely desperately need the grace and salvation of God. I know we can't work for our own salvation or contribute to it with any merit of our own. I would affirm all that. But total depravity says something in addition to all that. Because a lot of people go, I, I, I'm not a Calvinist, but I believe in depravity. That one, I, you, but but you probably don't. You don't know what the, the, the Calvinist version of that is. At least in this case, we're talking about total inability. That is, you don't have the ability to respond positively to the gospel when preached. You don't, you, you will say no every time if Jesus comes to you himself, if the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart in a, in a, in a sort of a generic sense, like there's God's trying to draw you in a sense, you're going to say no every time unless on Calvinist theology, unless he regenerates your heart first and you get saved, your heart is regenerated. And now you can't help but believe in Jesus. So you can't help but reject Jesus. You're always going to reject. You're going to say no to the gospel. But if God regenerates you, then you're going to say yes to the gospel every time. And this is why you're going to be like everybody who's not chosen and and predestined and regenerated. They're all going to uh, say no to the gospel every time. They're not even capable of saying yes. And then those who get regenerated before regeneration precedes faith, according to Calvinist theology. This is what R.C. Sproul said was the number one difference between Calvinist and other views. <clears throat> um, and then there, then you can't help but say yes. And of course, that's why they have perseverance of the saints. Notice they don't just have perseverance. They have a reason for the perseverance of the saints. And it's that God regenerated you. So you can't help but say yes, because it's the work of, of God in your life. By doing this, uh, Calvinists would say the work of God in salvation is not just that God pays for your salvation on the cross, not just that Jesus does righteous works and merits the salvation of the world, not that Jesus's works of sacrifice uh, propitiate my sin and 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 make me right with God. But in addition to that, there's another thing that it, you, you won't say is a work, but it's work-ish. God will work in you so that you will even say yes to the gospel. So here's where semi-Pelagianism comes in. Forgive me if I've lost anybody. <laughs> trying to summarize this stuff the best I can off the top of my head. Um, someone will say, hey, Mike, because I don't believe in total depravity, not that version. Um, hey, Mike, why did you accept Jesus? And I'm like, well, I, I heard the gospel and I knew I was a sinner and I knew I was in, in danger of the judgment of God. Like, I remember this. Like, when I, when I first heard of the salvation that freely comes through Christ, I was relieved and I was like, yes, I want that. <clears throat> so Mike, what makes you better than the guy who heard the gospel and didn't receive it? What, what do you mean better? Well, yeah, you must be, you must, something about you must be better so that you're kind of like <clears throat> your goodness, 
your goodness led you to receive the gospel, whereas he was worse, so he rejected the gospel. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, we're, we're not operating on biblical categories and biblical teachings right now. We're simply going off of your sort of moving, um, moving faith into the realm of works <laughs> so that my faith and trust now you say was some sort of goodness on my part. And then you kind of through the conversation, you'll say, well, therefore you must have been better than the other people. So you must have merited something. So you must have somehow been more righteous than the other person. And so you are really, you're saved because of some sort of goodness and some sort of activity or work on your part. And that's semi Pelagian. Like it's not Pelagian because you didn't work for your salvation, but the fact that you even believed, chose to trust in Christ, that that was a work that happened maybe with God working in your heart, but not with regeneration happening. Because of that, it's semi-Pelagian. And now I'm going to treat you like a total heretic. This is what I've seen online. I think that the phrase semi-Pelagian is a very unhelpful phrase. I don't think we should be using it. For instance, um, let's say you are... Um, there's some other heresy, okay? Um, someone rejects the deity of Christ. They reject the deity of Christ. That's huge. That's such a massive, massive issue. And so we'll we'll, we'll call those people, maybe they call themselves um, Weirdians, okay? <laughs> and so this group called the Weirdians, they reject the deity of Christ. Later on, later on, someone comes to you and they say, oh, I believe Jesus is God. I believe Jesus is God, but maybe they have a, a, a weird view related to his time on earth. And they go, but I believe that while he was on the earth, he never accessed any of his capacities as God. Never at any point did he use his knowledge that comes from his omniscience as God. Did he use power that came from his, his authority as God? Never did he do any of those things. And so I go, well, you're never, you're not denying the deity of Christ, but you're denying something related to the deity of Christ. So I'm going to say you're a semi-weirdian. And now in everybody's mind, rhetorically speaking, I start thinking you're a heretic. Instead of just thinking you're wrong, <laughs> this is the problem with semi-Pelagian, the phrase, I think that it would be much better if people would stop using it and instead come up with accurate terms to describe accurate views instead of someone's saying someone's semi-Pelagian when they would probably reject outright and completely what you consider Pelagian views. And they would go, that's wrong. That's evil. I reject that. And you're like, well, you're, you're half, you're half of that. You're semi that. What does that even mean? Um, not healthy, not, not, not moving the conversation forward in any way. My opinion on semi-Pelagian. All right. Number eight, uh, Vinicius Pav, Pavanello, Vinicius Man, I, I wish I could pronounce your name better. It sounds, like, it sounds like a cool name. Is it okay to give credit to God for something he might not have done, like a salary raise, new job, or other material or worldly things? Um, yeah, I think there's layers of giving God credit. Uh, this is my own way of understanding. Um, God may actively cause something, in which case I can thank him for actively causing, intervening, and doing something. Usually this is more along the lines of miracle, um, some sort of active work of God. But what about giving God credit for simply the benefits that arise from his creative work in general or his general sustenance of the, of, of the universe? So when I go out and I say you run a race and you win the race and you're like, well, did God empower me miraculously in the moment to win the race? No, I worked hard. I labored for it. But you know what? That hard work and that labor 
that would never have amounted to anything if God hadn't created a situation where I even had legs and arms and the capacity to run the race and allowed this universe to exist long enough for me to get over there and ha- and be in the race and and didn't have me dying from something before I got here. There's a sense in which God has provided the foundation for all the good things that, that we experience in our lives. And you might follow up with that and say, well, then why don't I give God credit for every evil thing that happens too? And here we have to look at, I guess, a couple elements, which one of them is um, when God created all things, there's a na- there's the nature of things that were good. God made all, all things and said, it is good. There's the nature of the goodness of all things and the platform or the foundation, the start of everything as being good. This would allow your your job and your racing and, and your kids and your breath and your lungs, all this wonderful stuff that we experience every day and take for granted, God gets credit. But then there was the meddling of man, the fall of, of, of sin, um, all of the bad stuff that's happened that's fallen into the world so that it is now in a corrupted state. So biblically speaking, from the beginning, we're getting this teaching that the foundations of goodness in the world from God, the nature of the corruption of the world from other sources, but we also get that God is using all of that evil for eventual good, and he's going to rebuild, remake the world with perfect goodness, so it'll eventually be perfect. Th- that is, now someone might say, well, that's very convenient, Mike. The skeptic might think this. Mike, that's very convenient that you can give God credit for good things, and yet there's a reason for bad and all this, and God's going to use the bad. And I'll say, you're right. It's extremely convenient because it's philosophically and emotionally satisfying And yet it was embedded in the teaching and the foundations of scripture from day one before you ever had that objection. It's convenient in exactly the way that it's convenient that two plus two equals four. It's convenient in the way that truth conveniently fits reality. Um, I think that this conveniently fits the needs of man and the things we see in the world, how it's good and bad and it's smashed together and yet we can give God credit for what he does that's good. We can look forward to how he'll use even the bad things. So yeah, I think you can give God credit. It doesn't mean that you're saying he miraculously caused an event to happen, but of course, it, you know, the good things wouldn't have happened without him setting it up in the first place. So it's general providence is what we're talking about. Uh, Benjamin Drew says, why does 1 John 2.7 say that he's not writing a new commandment, but the next verse, 1 John 2.8, says he's writing a new commandment. What's going on here? A good question. So this is actually something I think I saw an atheist um, or skeptic website that was saying, here's a contradiction in the Bible. He says, I'm writing you no new commandment. And then you go to the next thing. He says, it's a new commandment I'm writing you. <laughs> and here, oh, sorry, put it on your screen. So yeah, um, is that a contradiction? Um, well, no. Um, when reading any author, okay, this goes for the Bible, but it goes for any other author too. It's best to not assume that they're morons. <laughs> <laughs> and um you know when when in, in war and peace this this war and peace the book i which i haven't read the book but I, i'm familiar with the at least the opening right it says it was the best of times it was the worst of times you know if that was in the bible there'd be some atheist website out there that says that's a contradiction in the bible <laughs> it was the best of times was it the best of times or was it the worst of times it couldn't be the best of times and the worst of times at the same time um and it's like, you're, you're obviously not understanding what the author is trying to communicate. The the tension between these two is is deliberate and there's a lesson in it. It was both, it was the best of times, meaning great things happened, but horrible things happened too. It was the worst of times. So here, when uh, 
First John, he writes, I'm writing you no new commandment. This means, hey guys, this is nothing new. There's a sense in which this is not new, this is old, but there's a sense in which it is new. It is new. Okay, so what is it? He says, I'm not, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. What's the beginning? Well, in First John, the beginning is talking about Jesus, right? It's focused on Jesus. Um, but the commandment in First John is love. Love, 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 love is it's a focus in First John. And the, the ultimate commandment is to love each other. This is a commandment that Jesus gave his disciples. And when, when the apostle John went preaching the gospel to others, when that explosion of the kingdom happened after the death and resurrection of Christ, the Holy Spirit descends and man, just people get saved all over the place. They were taught from the beginning, love one another. God loved you. Jesus loves you. Look what he did for you. Look how he showed you his self-sacrificial love now. Live in that love and go and love other people. Love them, not just with fluffy emotion love. Oh, it may be fluffy and emotional, but that's not the whole thing. There's a substance beneath it that is concern and care for other people. Do that. Love others as God has loved you. And so that was an old commandment. This is an old commandment. They've had it from the beginning. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In what sense is the is the commandment new? The commandment is new because it's 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 <clears throat> my understanding here. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, my my understanding of this text is that it's new in the sense of it being uh, contrary to the way that the world is currently functioning. The world in the darkness of the world does not currently function based on love, biblical self sacrificial concern for others. Not that there's uh, you never see that anywhere in the world, but that is not the the theme of the world the way it's supposed to be the theme of the followers of Jesus. And so it's new in the sense that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, that there's this transition from old to new. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So again, it's about hate and love. It's about loving people. Um Anyway, uh, you may just, maybe someone would disagree with the explanation of why I say it's old, being that it was what Jesus taught and it was rare from the beginning of the preaching of the gospel to these people, um, and new because it's contrary to the way the world currently works, but it's part of the new thing God is doing as he breaks his kingdom into the lives of people. Maybe you'd see it as being old in a different way, new in a different way, and you could be right there, but but you get that there's there's a sense in which it's old and a sense in which it's new is the main point. All right, let's go to question number 10. Phil Agape says, Peter said in Acts 2.36 that God has, quote, made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He was already Lord and Christ, so what does this mean? Uh, same question with Jesus being given all authority in Matthew 28.18. Okay, I'm going to back up and do Matthew first. So Matthew 28.18. Um, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me, given to me. Then he says, therefore go. But Jesus was claiming authority from the beginning. He was claiming authority throughout his ministry. So I, I don't think then in the in this particular passage that he's suggesting that authority has just been given to me. Now, it's possible that there's a, a an element of that going on. Not that Jesus didn't have authority. Um, and this may tie into your other question. But there's a sense in which Jesus... So, so Jesus is, let me, uh, here, let me tell you Philippians 2, because this, this gives us this teaching. Um, 
let, don't look out your own interests, um, talking about us being humble and serving others. But it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, now follow the progression. It goes like this. It's like a roller coaster. It goes down and back up, down and back up. So first it's up here. Uh, who, though he was in the form of God, Jesus, in eternity past, in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's going to lower himself in some degree, some level. He's going to go down lower than that. So that's going to be down. So, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, takes the form of a servant. He comes and he lives as a human. He lives as, I mean, a human, how low is that compared to God? Um, you know, he's still God, but he takes this form on himself and it lowers himself. During this time, he's operating, uh, he's not taking over and controlling. He's not exhibiting all this sort of, in fact, he says, I haven't come for judgment. So he's, he's limited in a lot of ways by his own self-limitations. So he's down here in the sort of roller coaster dip. Um, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself become, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which to the first century audience would have been like, they would have got what that meant. The most shameful death you could have. And it was actually shameful. You would be embarrassed. You'd be horrified, not only because of how painful it was, but because of how shameful it was. Like you died on a cross. We won't even put you in the tomb with the other people in the family. Crazy stuff. Um, therefore, so so real low down, form of God, then really low down and as a human dies on a cross of all things. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, didn't Jesus already have a name above all names? He's God. Yes, but he has, there's a new flavor to it. There's a new meaning to it because he's the one who came and died for our sins. And so he not only can be judge of the world, but redeemer of the world. So that whether you reject him and you will have to call him Lord because he's going to simply take over or you receive him and you can call him Lord and savior. He is, his is going to be the name that's above every name. Um, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Jesus was not, he was always Lord. He's always been God. He was always Lord, but he was not operating with that full authority at all times while on the earth. But after his death and resurrection, it's like the validation of the son of God. He rises from the dead. He's then in acts, catch this, there's a meaning here. He ascends into heaven in the sight of the disciples. This is a way of visually showing God has received him. He did well. He accomplished the task. And now he's what? He's going to be enthroned as Lord. Not just one among you washing your feet, but now enthroned in heaven. So it's about a season of, of, of time. There was a season of lowness and a season now of highness. Okay, now let's go to the your first verse in your question, which is um, Acts 2.36. So let, the, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you cruci crucified. Let's back up a little bit and understand the context of where this is coming from. Um, he's talking about the difference between, uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skim through some of this, but I'll read some of the verses for us. So Peter stands up with the 11, lifting his voice. And this is Acts 2. This is like the first preaching of the gospel. He during At Pentecost, the people are gathered because of, of the tongues. And they're like, what? And they heard the noise. What's going on? And he says, men of Judea and all those, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
in the last days it shall be god declares i will pour out my spirit on all flesh remember that theme of the holy spirit we talked about in the first question and um and then there's gonna be prophecy men women um all these things um and then signs and all this stuff then he says men of israel hear these words jesus of nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's preaching to people who were in agreement with the crucifixion of Jesus at this point. Um, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's a powerful verse. I love that. Couldn't you? It was not possible for death to hold Jesus, which is anyway, it's a powerful, powerful thing. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. That is, David's kind of saying, I am not going to uh, just die and rot because. You're, you're ultimately Jesus is not going to die and rot. Uh, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. I'm looking forward to that. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, a messianic promise. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. There being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, you know that go down, come up thing Philippians talked about? Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he says himself, or he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a verse Jesus used to talk about himself where he's like, how is David's son the Lord of David? Mm, riddle me this, <laughs> Sadducees, <laughs> Pharisees. And so, you know, Jesus uses this because the, the Lord, Yahweh, says to the Lord of David, which is the Messiah, which is Jesus, who is his son, but is greater than him. Just like John says, he comes after me, but, he, but he's greater than me. He was before me. Anyway, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the timing is 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 a little fishy here because you're like, wait, did the resurrection of Jesus make him Lord and Christ or was he already Lord and Christ? And the answer is yes on both. Um, yes on both in different ways. Jesus was always Lord. He was God walking the earth. So he's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all. Um, even demons run before him and bow down and they're like, oh, can we do this? What can we do? You know, he is in control. He's the Lord of all. But he was not sitting on the throne, exhibiting the, the, the strength of his rule and, and actually forcing his rule upon mankind at the time. No, he was coming to live as a servant, live as someone who serves, someone who doesn't walk around enacting his lordship in all places, but rather he is the Lord, but he wasn't enacting his lordship. Maybe I'll put it that way. But then... There's a sense in which Jesus later is doing this in, I guess, a couple ways. One, Jesus dies and rises from the dead, is validated by God, and that resurrection is a statement to Israel, not that Jesus has become Christ or become Lord, but that 
the resurrection is affirming visibly to all people, Jesus is the Lord and he is the Christ. It's showing that it's true all along. He was always the Christ. He was always Lord. But now you're seeing it. This is why he says, uh, referring to the resurrection, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. It's the knowledge that is sudden with the resurrection of Jesus. It's the knowledge. Jesus is Lord. If he rose from the dead, and we could say this even now today, those of you who are on the fence about religion or Christianity, you're you're thinking about it, you can at least agree with this logic. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it's pretty reasonable to say he must be Lord in Christ. That all that other stuff must be true. When you tie it all together, you're like, yeah, if the resurrection's true, all of Christianity comes with it. And, and so that's kind of what Peter's talking about here. There's a sense in which his lordship is more manifest, is more extreme, um, and is more present after the resurrection than before, but he was Lord all the time. There's a sense in which his Christness, him being the Messiah, is more evident, uh, more, and, and, and the certainty of it is made more aware or given broader awareness is created for it, but he was always Christ. So, that, so it's true in both senses. I think this is just limits of human language. Oh, I didn't have that on your screen the whole time. I apologize. Trust me, it was in the Bible. Like for sure, it really was. <laughs> I mean, Acts chapter two, you guys can look it up. Check it out on your own. So there's my thoughts on that one. Let's go to question number 11. Anthony Vilgiate. Uh, am I getting a lot of like Italian names? It feels like Italian. I want some pasta now. I searched the website and contacted your team. This one hasn't been answered yet. In Colossians 1.24, what is lacking in Christ's sufferings and how is Paul contributing to them? Great question. Yeah, I don't remember having ever been asked this uh, in a Q&A or anything. So here we go. And I will put it on your screen because I at least learned from some of my mistakes. Um, I went to the wrong place though, didn't I? Okay, I went to 2.24. Ah, backing up, backing up. All right. So verse 24, we'll read it by itself. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul here is talking. And so he goes through sufferings. He gets persecuted. He gets put in prison. He gets hard, heavy objects thrown at his face. He has a lot of bad things that happen to him. He has mobs that want to chase him out of town. Um, he has all sorts of things going on. And he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Um, that's a powerful statement by itself. Do you rejoice in your sufferings? Well, I mean, I'm not happy about my suffering, but he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake because he thinks that his suffering, the end result of it is that it's bringing benefit into other people's lives so that he's like someone who says, um, I will suffer that they may have benefit. And so then he says what you're asking about. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. What is lacking? How is he filling up what is lacking? Now, here's how I've heard this used by some people. They go, well, obviously, um, what's happening here is Paul is vicariously suffering, like the way Jesus did on the cross. And he's experiencing pain and he's experiencing torment. And he, through his, 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 the shedding of his blood, through his suffering, he's bringing atonement, extra sort of payment for the sins of people because there's some things lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now he's doing it through Christ and he's doing it like it's kind of all mixed together. But but this is atoning work that's happening here. That's what some people say. Um, I think that this is a mistake to say that. All suffering and all affliction is not atonement. Jesus' suffering and affliction is atonement, but I don't think we're getting that here. Um, 
So let me read it with a different, different understanding. So I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. What is he talking about? Persecution. And because he's preaching, because he's sharing the gospel, he's getting persecuted. But he's rejoicing in it. Why? Because um, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Because of Paul's sufferings, the gospel was going out and more people were getting saved. Is it similar to Christ's suffering for the salvation of others? Similar, but not the same. There's a layer of similarity, but it's not the same. The scripture clearly teaches that Jesus finished the payment for our sins. Um, in the gospels, he says, it is finished. That's it. Plus, I don't have to, as a Christian, I'm never told I have to believe in the sufferings of Christians. I just believe in what Christ did for me. I don't have to believe in what Christians have done for me. And I never am I told to believe those things, but it would be required if this was atoning work that they were doing. I'd have to have faith in them. In Hebrews, it's extensively explained that Jesus made one offering for all people and there is no longer an offering for sin. And that's it. It was completed. He paid the offering. He offered it metaphorically or, or spiritually in the temple up in heaven, so to speak, the New Jerusalem, the, or not the New Jerusalem, the, um, the, the heavenly temple. And so the teaching of scripture very clearly and thoroughly tells us that Jesus' offering is done, complete, finished. There's nothing left to offer for sin. And to say there is, is a great offense to the work of Christ. Hebrews gets into this in detail. Please read the book of Hebrews if you, if you wonder about that. So what is he talking about? He's simply saying, um, uh, when, when, when the gospel is preached, those who preach it and those who bring it into new lands will go through sufferings. Those people suffering, they're the afflictions of Christ <clears throat> that are happening to expand and share the gospel in the church. They're not atoning for sins. They're not, they're, I'm not, my suffering doesn't get rid of someone else's sins. That's what Jesus did. But rather I am suffering in order to spread the gospel. Jesus taught this to Paul when he, when he first confronted Paul, when Paul gets saved in the book of Acts and he says, Paul or Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul was persecuting Christians. He was making them suffer for the gospel. And then he became one who would suffer for the gospel. That's like Christ suffering. He goes, why do you persecute me? These are Christ sufferings because the reason you're suffering is not because you're a poop face, not because you're mean, not because you are causing problems and getting, you're reaping what you've sown. You're suffering because you're sharing the truth of Christ and it does cause suffering for you. That's Christ sufferings being filled up. Anytime you preach the gospel and through no fault of your own, you, bring, you, you endure suffering for the sake of the kingdom. You're also filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. It's, it's not atoning work is the, is the point. Anyway, and sort of repeating myself, I'll just move on. Uh, next question. Anonymous question says, my friend doesn't want to have too small a view of God. So he sees every small event in his life as God speaking to him, even trivial things. Am I being too stingy or is he over-spiritualizing? Uh, he's probably over-spiritualizing. Um, the logic here concerns me, okay? Let's set aside whether you're, whether God's speaking to your friend through all these little things. The, the other issue that, that stood out to me in your question is this, this belief that if, if God isn't speaking to me through all these little things all the time, then God is small. That's deeply concerning. This is what happens in some hyper charismatic circles. I attach 
the reputation and the nature of God to me feeling little tiny adrenaline boosts, right? Little dopamine hits when I constantly feel like God's speaking to me all the time. That's not healthy. If God was silent to you for the rest of your life, it would not make him any smaller. That's weird. The two are not connected in any way, shape, or form. So that's strange. Um, it might be that your friend's reaching for this because he wants to attach his or her need to feel that um, that God is speaking to them. Was it him? Yeah, him. Okay, so uh, his his desire to have God speak to him and his delight and his joy in feeling that God is speaking to him. Okay, that's delightful and joyful. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but he wants to attach this to something like a need. This has to be the case spiritually. Like I have justification for looking for God in every little thing. Like I, I wake up and I saw a butterfly go by my window and I thought, God's telling me that today something new is going to happen. It's a new day. Something, uh, my life's going to change today. It's going to metamorphosize into a new thing. And I can, and I, now yes, I just made this up off the top of my head, right? I just took something that happened and I turned it into a metaphor and a message and then made it about, about that same day. And so you wake up and you have a headache. And so you go, I feel like God's showing me that there's there's something on my mind that's that I need to give to him. I need to release to him because it's just going to cause me harm if I keep thinking about it. Is that true? I mean, maybe, maybe you just twisted your neck a little bit while you're sleeping and it has nothing to do with those things, but there can be a desire to feel God speaking. Um, and then you're like, where do I find that in scripture? Well, I don't in the new Testament. I don't see this in the examples of the Bible. I don't see this God speaking in a bunch of little ways all the time. No, that's doesn't really happen. When God speaks like that, it's pretty rare, pretty rare. Even people like the apostle Paul, who you'd think would be someone who's hearing from God all the time, right? The apostle Paul's like, um, then we went to this city and we went to that city and they're not being led by the Lord. Most of the time it happens rarely, but most of the time they're not being led by God. If you look at a map, you go, Paul's just going to big cities. He's like, there's a lot of people there. Let's go there and preach the gospel. Oh, there's a bunch of people over there and we got a boat that'll take us. Let's go over there and preach the gospel. He's not being led every step of the way. That's interesting. Um, there's a couple times where they're told like, you can't, don't do Asia. We don't know how they were told. The spirit refused for them to go there. But sometimes it happens, not all the time, not 10 times a day, not in every little thing. That's not found in scripture. Could God still do it? Of course he could do it. Is it likely? Nah, nah it doesn't seem very likely. Is it um, biblically supported? No. So what did your friend do? They go, well, I'll attach it to the glory of God. This is a reckless move. Take something I want, something I like theologically, and then say that God's glory depends on this thing. It's not taught clearly in scripture, but I'm going to say God's glory itself depends on this thing being true, even though it's not taught in scripture. That's scary. God's too small if he doesn't speak to me in these ways. Even though he didn't do that in scripture, was he small then? Like, this is so not healthy and not okay. But it is the kind of sort of bravado that we sometimes see in um, people who are just, they're looking to affirm a theology they already believe and they don't know why they believe it. So they look for a reason and they're like, well, I'll just throw God's glory on the, on the, uh, on the altar there. And you have to sacrifice that if you don't hold to my view. Um, that's, that's more concerning to me than the other issue of thinking God's speaking to you all the time. Um, yeah. Is God really speaking to him? I, I Probably, probably not. Okay. Look, th th this is maybe that he thinks of positive things and he thinks of things that are good, but that doesn't mean that it was God who showed it to him. 
I don't see that example in scripture. If God was speaking to him all the time, if this was true, probably he wouldn't say something like, God's too small if he doesn't do this for, for me and for us and for everybody. Like that doesn't seem like the kind of thing he got from God. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, this is the kind of thing though that I think causes people like myself to be tempted to pull so far away from the the, the, the use of the gifts and the sense of people going, I think God showed me something. Um, because they see sort of a reckless usage of it that feels dangerous and it feels like I will go after this thing I want no matter what the cost, no matter how I got to handle scripture, no matter what I got to say about God, because man, I've been taught that this is the height of Christianity, is these little spiritual tingles that I'm getting right now. And I'll say this, the height of Christianity is facing death with the confidence of Christ's resurrection. That is the height of Christianity. It is not feeling the tingles. Sorry if I got a little passionate there. Number 13, Allison G says, Hey Mike, I'm wondering what discipling others, sharing the gospel and service to God looks like in your everyday, in your day-to-day -day life. Anything you've learned over the years, your teaching has helped me a lot. Allison, I am woefully inequipped to give the best possible answers here. Um, discipling others, I think, is an area where I feel like I failed a lot. Um, we've focused mostly on ministry in groups and just, and I did discipleship, okay? I would, I would, you know, with, with youth ministry in particular, I'd spend time with people, I would take them aside, I'd try to provoke good conversations, I would do all those things, but I feel like there was a I feel like I just wasn't that great at it, to be honest. And so I don't know that I'm the best example for you. Um, what have I learned about discipling others? Uh, the things I've learned that looking back, I would do differently is to be more intentful about it, is to just just talk to people about being discipled and to n not feel like I have to be perfect in order to disciple somebody else, but rather just seeking to stir each other up and being willing to push for those types of things. I think you have to have a lot of grace when discipling people that you're not just constantly saying, you're falling short, you're falling short, you're falling short, you're falling short, let me fix you, let me fix you, let me fix you. Because discipleship also involves things like confidence in the grace of Christ, confidence in the love of God, um, fellowshipping with other believers in healthy ways. That's part of discipleship too. And so not just focusing on fixing people as discipleship, That's there's an aspect of it, but there's also encouragement and other things too that I would think I would want to emphasize more. Um, yeah, sharing the gospel. Um, I mean, that's just, the more you do it, the better. The little tweaks that I would have is uh, sometimes as Christians, we might share the gospel because we feel like we want to be able to say, I shared the gospel. Um, not always because we're thinking, I want that person to hear the gospel. So that slight tweak making sure that when I share the gospel, it's so they can hear, not so I can go, I checked off the, I shared the gospel thing. Really make sure that the heart of it, the purpose of it is getting the word of God into the lives of people. And I think that will influence and inform the way that you share. Um, there's something that I would, I would add, tell myself, <laughs> you know, um, and service, what does service to God look like day to day? I think to me, it's this seems maybe too pragmatic. Um, making commitments to the local church to be involved is is probably the best thing I've done when it comes to making sure that my life is serving God. Um, this is not to the exclusion of family, not to the exclusion of your own household, especially. I don't mean that at all. Um, 
day to day, just having times of prayer with your family, having a, a discussion after church about the things that were that were talked about. Uh, my wife's really good about this. After church, she usually is like, oh, here's something in the message I was thinking about. And there's no competition there. There's no like one-upsmanship. It's just us trying to dialogue on the things of God in our in our family, you know. So that's a good thing. There's a few things that in a sense, some of you might be like, wow, that really helped me, Mike. And others are like, it's kind of, kind of boring there. <laughs> but those are some of the things that have helped me um, and that I would, looking back, want to do even more. And I hope that they are, provide some benefit. Number 14, Ginny B says in James 1, how do we count our trials as joy? Man, James 1. You know, if, if the Bible was written, here's an interesting random thought. <clears throat> if the Bible was really just written, um, like to sort of be an engineered religion, to be like survival of the fittest religion. And it's like trying to become the fittest religion. Like, why would this be written? <laughs> he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What? Really soak this in. The Bible cares more about your character than it does you even liking the Bible. You go through trials. I'm going through trials right now, right? I'm not going to share them all with you, but I'm all the time. There's always something, but definitely going through trials right now. How am I supposed to count it joy when I can name specific things that are going on that I'm like, that is a difficult thing. There's nothing joyful about it. It's rough. Um, it doesn't make sense. It seems like it's just causing harm and I don't see any good in it. And all that can be true. But how do I count it joy? I think that we don't count the joy, uh, the trial joy. He doesn't say count your trials as joy or be happy about your trial. That would be a more shallow and, 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 diff and even more difficult thing to do. But instead, count it all joy, consider it joy, lean towards joy, right? When you meet trials of various kinds. So this is to say... I'm going to hit an obstacle and everything about it is difficult, but I'm going to remind myself there's one good thing about this. What is that? Well, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience. This trial is a test of your faith. Every trial is a test of your faith. Not like whether you're a Christian or not, but it's, it's testing your faith. Kind of like when you take steel and you put it under weight, you're testing it. You're seeing how strong it is. Every trial will test your faith to see exactly what kind of trust you have in Christ and in God. And there's a joy here because unlike steel, which if you bend it, it gets weaker. A Christian's faith is, I guess, more like a muscle. When you, when you, when you really press in and you have to work that muscle hard, it gets stronger, not weaker. That's the joy. You as a Christian can say, this is the hardest thing I've ever gone through. I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. But I know one thing. My faith in Christ though it's tested, though it's at its at its end right now, that it's being strained to the, to the furthest degree, it is going to be stronger as a result. I might feel weaker, but my faith will be more mature. It'll be more, it'll be stronger. It, it could be a more developed faith where it, maybe it doesn't feel like strong in the sense that like a, an 18 year old thinks of strong faith, but maybe strong in the sense that um, the kind of way that an ocean can be strong when it's just perfectly still. There's like a kind of stillness and strength that's there in just a, just a flat ocean just sitting there. That kind of strength can come through the testing of your faith. And that is not something to laugh at. That is, that is something to be joyful about, to say, I'm not, 
smiley happy, but I'm counting it as joy that my strength and trust in Christ will grow. And I will carry that faith in God for the rest of my life. And the story of him carrying me through this hardship, I will be rejoicing in eternity with him. So let steadfastness or patience, some translations say, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, having to do with maturity here, not like sinless perfectionism, lacking nothing. You are growing. Your trial's bad, and it's not necessarily going to make your life better, but you are growing in strength. You are getting... This is is huge, okay? Look, either this is a placebo, a Christian placebo, and all of Christianity is false, and this is just to make you feel better about hard times, and there's no reason to feel good about hard times, and it's like an atheist funeral. I've been to atheist funerals. Not laughing at them at all. Those of you who are atheists are watching right now. I'm not laughing. It's a hard thing because you're looking at it, and you're like... There's nothing redeeming. There's nothing redeeming about this moment. It's over. They're gone. And I've been to the services because I used to release doves for funerals. I was a white dove release. Worked for them uh, when I was because I was doing ministry and not getting paid. So I was working other part time jobs to just try to pay some bills and buy some food. And so um, we would go and release doves and stuff. So I'd be at the gravesite and someone's reading a poem and all this. And it was the most empty platitudes. The things that Maybe that same atheist would mock others if they had those empty platitudes, but then the funeral comes and they've got nothing left. There's nothing but platitudes because in the end, it's all empty. And that's just such a tragedy. So maybe Christianity is just a placebo. It's just a, it's just platitudes that are meant to feel real. Um, you know, count it all joy. God's working in your trial and stuff. Or it's true. And even though you're in the worst time of your life, God is at work in it. And if nothing else, if nothing else, you don't know what other good God's bringing, you know, your faith will be stronger because you trusted God through this hard time. And that strength in your relationship with God will be carried forward into eternity. You can have joy in the eternal strength of your trust in Christ, growing deeper, growing calmer, growing more firm and real because that eventual test of your faith is what is facing death with confidence in the resurrection of Christ. All right, let's look at the next question. Number 15, Rebecca H says, hi, Pastor Mike. Hi, Rebecca. Is God giving the devil permission to persecute the lives of certain Christians today, like in the book of Job? Thank you so much. Um, In in a broad sense, I would would say, seems theologically, I should say yes. Um, In a specific sense, like do I imagine when someone goes through hard times that there was a conversation where Job goes, or God goes to have a talk with Satan and he's like, Hey, have you considered my servant, Mike? And that there was this actual sort of this sort of activity that happened, like the scenario. I I wouldn't do that. I, I have no idea what goes on behind the scenes, but I do think that God is the, the teaching, the biblical teaching of God's sovereignty is such that there could be no activity of Satan without God allowing it. Does that mean God approves of it? No. No, in fact, we have, we have clear teaching in Scripture that Satan does things God does not approve of. God rebukes him for and he gets in trouble for and stuff like that. So it's not about approval. But he does allow things to happen. Now, even parents do this with their kids. They'll see their kids arguing and fighting and the kids doing something they don't like, but they're going to allow it to continue up to a certain point. Then they'll stop it. Um, and it's part of raising them, but it's also part of allowing free will, which is a good thing. And so, yeah, I, I do think that the biblical teaching of God's sovereignty is such that you can't escape that God is allowing that to happen and you could stop it. And I think he has justified reasons for not stopping it. And so we can learn to trust him in that. Um, yeah, that seems, yeah, 
easy one. Uh, number 16, Wes Billingham says, Good day, Pastor Mike. Well, hello to Wes from Down Under, I imagine. <clears throat> I've been struggling with the phrases or lyrics such as, All glory be to Christ and all heaven sings to Christ alone. Do these incorrectly exclude the Father and the Holy Spirit? Oh, um, no, I don't think so. Uh, and I think there's a sense in which we can say the Trinity is so interconnected, God is so interconnected, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that I can say um, glory to Christ alone without in any way offending the Father. And and here's part of where we say, look, language is a little bit fluid, language is a little bit limited, and God is not expecting us to have perfectly formulaic statements at all times. He understands not only what we say, but what we mean. If I say glory to Christ alone, the Father knows that I am not in any way excluding the Father through this. In fact, I'm honoring the Son and honoring the Father even when I honor the Son. Just like when Jesus says, um, if, you, if you believe in me, you believe in him who sent me. That belief in Jesus is, is, is also belief in the Father. Because there's an interconnectedness there in the nature of who God is. So yeah, um, it, now let's suppose that there was a scenario where there were people who worshiped Christ but rejected the Father, I would then be objectionable to a lyric like that. Because if we were in a theological climate where there was anybody in the room who's like thinking, I'm singing this song as a rejection of the Father, I, then I would be like, yeah, I can't sing that. I would sing it and know God knows exactly what I mean. When I say glory to Christ alone, I mean Christ compared to all other humans or all other people who claim they can save you. I mean Christ as opposed to all of those things, not as opposed to the Father or the, or the Holy Spirit or anything like that. So yeah, personally don't see a problem with that unless there was a theological setting where there was, a, I could expect it to cause confusion and maybe I'd want different words. That's my view. If you ever have lyrics, you're singing in church and you're like, I don't feel comfortable with that. Don't sing it. Please don't sing it. Right? Maybe they, you're not putting that judgment on everybody else. Maybe they mean it this way or that way, but you're like, I just don't. And you could sing your own words. They're singing you all glory be to christ maybe you just sing oh glory be to christ and that's your way of seeing that and then you can still participate in worship and um yeah that's fine number 17 tias tia's mad uncle david <laughs> tia's mad uncle david says every verse in psalm refers to god's law there's something missing on my screen oh there we go it was blocking it. Uh, every verse in Psalm 119 refers to God's law and 10 different words are included, are used, including commandments, precepts, law, testimonies, ways, etc. Why does each word have a different meaning? So uh, T is mad, Uncle David. I have actually thought about this myself too, going through Psalm 119 real slowly and trying to think. And at the beginning, I felt like I had, I was onto something, you know, like there's commandments and how is that different than God's precepts or God's laws or his testimonies. And maybe the testimonies refers to what God has done in the past. And the commandments refers to like what God is ordering people to do. And the laws refer to like what God is, has set in stone as sort of policies that all men are supposed to obey or something like that. Um, I don't think so. I think that what's, what's probably going on here is Maybe there's some flavor there. Maybe there's something that's there. But as I continued going through Psalm 119, I found that the, the definition I was assigning to those words, I, that made it feel unique at the beginning of the Psalm. As I went through, I couldn't, I couldn't hold it. I couldn't give that flavor meaning to say testimonies every time it was used. 
Um, and so I kind of abandoned that task and I thought, yeah, if there's a flavor that's there, I'm not sure what it is. If there's a slightly different meaning for each of these words, um, and they're not just used sort of synonymously, um, I'm not sure what it is. So I tend to think Psalm 119 repeats over and over again, not repeats, but, uh, cause it does give different statements about God's law over and over, over and over, just constantly different things it's saying, but it's always talking about God's law and what God has revealed. Maybe the one lesson we can get is that Psalm 119 is not meaning to exclusively be like just sort of the, the, um, the legal side of the law of Moses, but rather it's more expansively talking about God's word because testimonies is more than law, right? There, there's one that really stands out. Testimonies feels like more than law. If you were to say, including God's testimonies, then you're like, so the story is in Deuteronomy, not just the laws in parts of Deuteronomy. That would be my, my thought there. But yeah, interesting question. Um, maybe somebody else has done more work on that and they have a more thorough answer. Number 18, the apostle of rock says, how do you go about a project like women in ministry? I want to do something similar with Genesis, Genesis one and two, but don't even know where to begin or what tools to use other than logos. Of course, <sighs> women in ministry has been a project that got way out of hand for me. <laughs> so <laughs> not sure if I'm the best example. The number of articles and the number of books and the amount of research and all this other stuff um, has been more than I had anticipated or desired to get into, but I locked myself into a, a quality of work, how thorough I wanted to be, and then everything else just sort of got sucked in with it. Um, when I do projects, um, I approach them all differently. I don't have like sort of a format for it, but basically um, what I would start with Genesis is uh, if I was doing that Genesis one and two is I would first set aside books and I would just do a study of it and I would come up with all my questions, all my questions, this question, that question, that question, that question, that question, if possible, categorize those into groups. And then there you have sort of like your segments of your study. Um, then, um, then you start pursuing answers and the answers will come through your own verse by verse study. This is super important. You can't neglect your verse by verse study of it independent of reading other people's works because they will miss things or they will take verses out of context. You won't notice unless you've done your own work on it. Uh, but then you read a variety of views. And so maybe for Genesis, you find like a four, maybe there's a four views book where you get multiple views. And then I chase footnotes from there. Okay. Once you find like <clears throat> some scholars who are talking about these issues, some people who are getting deep on it, or maybe just good commentators who are very intelligent and good at what they're doing. And then you chase footnotes. Logos has lots of these resources. You know, you've got these commentaries and you go, well, that was an interesting point. If that's true, his interpretation might be right, but how do I know if it's true? So I go to the footnote and then I get the article and then I go look it up and maybe it's free, hopefully. And I'll read the article and I chase that footnote. Maybe he has footnotes and then you start to get headaches and then it takes forever. And then people are like, when are you going to be done? Was this serious, Mike? <laughs> that's just what happens. So, um, so yeah, those are some steps that I would take. Um, Chasing footnotes is what expands your project into larger and larger areas. Reading a variety of views, even views you disagree with, is what helps you be aware of angles that you need to consider that maybe you just overlooked. And so, yeah, those are the those are the things I would do for a project like that. Most people don't need to do a project like that. This is not every Christian needs to be doing these kinds of giant projects, but some of us do. All right, let's go to question 19. Shauna Hathaway says, I would like to know if when we are in heaven, will we just forget about those that we loved on earth that weren't saved? I can't imagine how there could be no sorrow if we can remember them. Shauna, I completely understand this. So, um, 
<clears throat> the idea of people I love and care about, and the thing is God loves them too. He loves them. He love, doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He loved them. He sent his son to die for them. He is through his spirit reaching out to them. But through the deceptions of mankind, through the sins of mankind, through whatever's going on, <clears throat> they're not saved. And I love them and I want them to be in eternity and in joy in heaven. And the idea of them not and them being... And, you know, obviously the, the question of the exact nature of hell and what that is like is, is there, but whatever your answer is there, you'd be in heaven being aware, okay, they're not, they're, they're, they're in hell. They're experiencing, they've experienced God's judgment for their sins, the wrath of God, apart from the grace of Christ. So I'm just, I'm saying all that to say, Shauna, I feel the weight of this and that it's compassion that drives it and it's love and concern and care. Um, and that it, the gravity of the issue can't be overstated. So there are some who come with a solution like, well, maybe we'll just forget them. Um, that makes me sad now to think I would just forget them entirely. Like, I feel like I'm being punished in a sense almost, right? But, but there are some who say, well, that's the solution. We just don't remember them anymore. And then some people will quote the scripture that says like, former things will not be brought to remembrance. <clears throat> I don't think that's what former things not being brought to remembrance means. I think it's meaning, uh, when it refers to that, if you read the context of the Old Testament, the way it's used, I think it's saying things will be so great, you won't even compare them to the way things used to be because it'll be so much better. You won't be like, boy, I, I back in the day, things were better. I'm bringing back that former thing to remembrance with sorrow because it was better before and now it's not. <clears throat> That's what's not going to happen in heaven, uh, not going to happen with, uh, not just in heaven, but heaven meets earth. So we have an eternal uh, planet we're living on, right, with God. God with us being creating light because his glory is so present and close and uh, anyway all the good things that come there so yeah I don't think that's the case um, we also have in texts of scripture things like the saints in revelation crying out Lord when will you avenge our blood on those who who, who martyred us here's an interesting element there <clears throat> they're in, in revelation they're in heaven and for this scene to make sense it would seem that it would at least be logically required because okay, seems to be the case could be that i'm wrong but it seems that it would be likely that people who are in the presence of god they've died but they're in the presence of god they remember not only earth but the unsaved of earth because they're saying when will you bring judgment on those who killed us so they're aware of the unsaved that are on earth so here we have a, a, a an example in scripture however picturesque and how, however much you would see this as like well this is you know, eschatology here, and, and maybe it's not like this literally happened, but it's more like this is an example of the type of thing that's going on. But even if it's an example of the type of thing, they're remembering people that are unsaved on earth. Then you might say, what? But when the new heaven and earth comes, then they forget. Think about this, though. How much am I going to have to forget? I will have to not only forget them, but everything connected to them because people would leave holes, Right? I'd be in heaven, I'd be going, yeah, man, I remember my mom. She was great. In fact, she's over here, mom. It was so great knowing you and loving you in this life. And then someone else goes, I don't remember a mom. Because their mom wasn't saved. So they're just like, yeah, I just, I don't remember a mom. So do they forget all the vacations they took? Do they forget all the talks they had? Do they forget the things that they learned from their mom that their mom taught them? I think this causes more problems than it solves, is what I'm saying. 
and it doesn't seem consistent with scripture. And I don't think the statements about memory in the Bible fit it either. So what then is my solution? Um, what I think is going to happen. Okay. I'm not actually fixing the problem, right? God's going to fix the problem and he'll fix it on his, in his own way. And we will be in heaven in full fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. These are the descriptions. So that we know is going to happen. We're just trying to understand how, how can I think about those who've been lost? Those who've rejected Christ, those who suffered God's wrath and judgment unprotected by the grace of Christ. How can I think about them and not have sorrow? I think it has to do with awareness, realization, and sort of um, coming to a place of peace. When I stand before God in my new body, in my new state, in the fullness of joy, and I see something I've never seen, never seen, I see how holy God is. Oh, I know he's holy, but I will, like Job. Remember Job when he complained about God throughout the book and he's like, God did this to me and I just want to talk to him and find out why. He gets a glimpse of God and he says, now my eyes have seen and I and I hold my mouth. I've, I've said foolish words. I didn't understand. I'm, I'm a dummy. Something happened to Job at the end of the book where he had a realization just from seeing God, from seeing a, a, a realization of who, not the fullness of all that God is even, but just a revelation of a greater knowledge of God. He just holds his mouth and he goes, I never should have said anything against you ever in any way. Wow. He mentally changed his perspective because of his revelation of understanding God better. I think that this will happen at an even greater degree when we are in the presence of God, the most beautiful being, the most wonderful and holy and glorious being. You're going to have just the word glory is going to mean so much more to you when you stand before God. You're going to see him in all his goodness and all his wonder. You're going to be in his presence, experiencing his joy. You'll see that even his judgment, even of someone you love, was just and right. And you will know he did only the right amount of judgment, only the perfect punishment, and it would have been wrong if he hadn't. I think you will be so reconciled with God's judgment and justice that it will not cause you an ongoing sense of something's wrong. Um, that's my understanding of how that's going to work. Uh, we, we will have a change of our hearts when we're in his presence. And I'm looking forward to that. Let's go to question number 20. This comes in from Lekko or Lekako, who says, good evening from the Netherlands. Well, hello and good evening. I give I would give you a greeting, a Netherlands greeting if I knew one, but I don't. So never mind. Uh, can you explain to me what goal Paul hopes to achieve in Philippians 3, verse 11 and 12? Why does he have to do it? Thank you very much. Oh, challenging question. All right, let's go to it. I'm gonna have to back up a little bit here. Um, I'll back up a lot. Yeah, why not? Why not? Why not read more scripture? Is that gonna offend anybody? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. It's a good reminder of why we just wanna keep going over the scriptures again and again, even though you already know this passage. Go over it again. It's no trouble, but it's safe. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We're talking about people who would require circumcision as a necessary for salvation or, or any other work that you're going to add there. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, now he's going to do this thing Paul does a, a, a few times, not much, but a little bit, but it's more than once where he talks about 
things that he could boast about as a way of saying, see all this stuff? This is nothing. What matters is Christ. Okay, so here he goes. He goes, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So you could be like, I wasn't just circumcised. It was on the eighth day. So I was like, I was even on the right day. I did it. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So yeah, he's descended. He knows his genealogy and all that. As to the law, a Pharisee, which nowadays modern Christians are Pharisee is kind of a mean word. You're like, you're a Pharisee. It was never used like that in the first century. They didn't go to people and be like, you're Pharisees. You're acting like a Pharisee. Pharisees were just like these religious heroes who were very much looked up to by the normal people. And they were thought of as being very godly. Jesus's problems with them are things like they're self-righteous. They add to God's word. They don't stick to the text of scripture, but they have traditions that they've added on, that kind of thing. Um, oh, and Sarah Zimmerman, best assistant in the world, says that in Netherlands, the greeting is hoy or ho got het. <laughs> I probably did that wrong. <laughs> so hoy. <laughs> At any rate, um, thanks for looking that up, sir. Uh, so as to zeal, so he's a Pharisee, this considered something he could be like, look at this thing I've done. It's hard work, really hard work to be a Pharisee, not necessarily work that God approves of, but from a man's, man's perspective, man, like, look at you, you're impressive. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, that was his zeal expressed, right? Because all zeal isn't good. It's if it's in the, if it's zeal in the right direction. At any rate, he says, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. He was doing all the things that the Pharisees were supposed to do. Now, Paul elsewhere talks about how he sinned. And even when he, uh, at all times, he was always a sinner. So he doesn't mean blameless in that sense. He means like the Pharisees, they're sort of like chopping of all the laws into all these little rules of how much you tithe of this spice and stuff like that. He was doing those things. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In the last question, we talked about the, when you see God, when you're in his presence, when we leave this mortal life and we go to be with Christ, it's going to change us, not just with getting new bodies at, at a future time in the resurrection, but it'll change us to know, just know him and know him better. And that's worth it. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Okay, this kind of sets up this the beginning of getting to your question. Because um, your question is like, what does he mean he's striving to like attain the resurrection? Like almost like he's working for it. That's how some people would understand it. Um, instead, what he says is, I had to give up my high status as a Pharisee. I had to give up my sense of belonging in the Israeli community because he's kicked out of the synagogues. All these things that he's that he just listed that he and you know they say i'm obeying the law look i'm blameless by the law and he's like but not really you know i i lust i have these issues romans 7 he's like i am fallen i am a wretched man i need jesus he had to give up all the things he just listed in order to follow christ and he's saying it was worth it now let's keep reading and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in christ Two things the righteousness Jesus gives him is not. It's not um, of his own, and it's not through the law. It's those things combined. He didn't do, it's not things he did, and it's not through his, his obedience to the law. Ultimately, it's Jesus. He's righteous, and he clothes us in his righteousness. So he gifts us righteousness instead of what Paul was doing before, which was trying to achieve some of his own. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, right? Not works, faith. That I may know him and the, re- the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What are the means that he's using? So far, we're going to get to verse 12 in a second. The means that he's using are expressly not works, but faith. Not my activity, but Jesus' activity. Not my righteousness and all the good stuff I've done, or my heritage, or my circumcision, or my attempted obedience to the law, but Jesus' fulfillment of all things, and I just have faith in him. That's the means through which he'll attain the resurrection. And because he chose Jesus, he actually suffered the loss of many things. He may have been tempted to go back to those things, but he would have had to do so at the cost of Christ. He would have had to deny Christ in order to be accepted back into the synagogues. He would have had to reject Christ to be embraced by his, his old Pharisee colleagues. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul presses on, but what does he press on towards? The salvation that comes through faith. Paul's like, I'm going to hold on to Jesus and my faith in him, no matter the cost. I'm going to live for Jesus because he's worth it. Because any other other distraction, any other thing that pulls me from my trust in Christ and obedience to him, it's, that's rubbish. That is rubbish to me. I'll, I'll read on, we'll read some more. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, right? He hasn't, um, achieved this already. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, that stuff he talked about before, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Um, in other words, keep your eyes on Jesus. Push forward in faith. Some of you Christians, you know, just by virtue of how many people will watch this video, some of you watching, you have become lackadaisical in your faith. Your confidence in Christ and your trust in Christ and your commitment to Christ has been waning and it's shrunk to the point where you're kind of scared. That's what Paul's talking about. Holding fast to that thing that you had a long time ago when you were like, man, it's Jesus. It is all about Jesus. He's the creator of the world. He's the redeemer of mankind. He is, he is my Lord and my King and my Savior and my life. In fact, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. You need to get that fire going in your heart again. And that's you pressing on. It's you continuing in the same faith that you had all along. Jesus is more and worth more than anything else. And I choose him over all other things. That's the encouragement here. Um, I hope that helps. Uh, Lekiko, uh, I'm sorry if I butchered your name, not, not intentionally. But um, you say, what does he have to do? Paul has to stay committed to Christ. He has to stay committed to Jesus, that it's Jesus over the world, Jesus over my own righteousness, Jesus over all other things. My life is, is about Christ. That's what he has to do. He has to stay committed to. He has to stay fo- and it's what you need to stay focused on and me, I need to stay focused on. If any Christians listening and you've been waning and you've been backsliding in your in your walk with God and you're like a you're like a train that's slowed down and you've been slowing down for a long time now and you're you're worried is, is it going to just stop? You need to stir up your trust and faith in Christ. You need to go on a long walk and have a long prayer talk with God and go over all the issues and give it all freshly to God and you need to be like that zealous new believer that you once were, like in Ephesians where he says, "Remember your first love." That would be my encouragement to you. So that's all 20 questions for today. Let's pray and hope this has, has, has helped you. If it has, then that's all we were going for. You don't need to do anything. 
You just need to be helped. Uh, Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that it is, it is in fact, your incredible abundant love for us and your measureless grace that sustains us every day, every minute. It is ours to just hold fast to Jesus Christ and be fully committed to him, to have faith. And we pray that you would stir up our faith, that we would be like new believers in intensity, but like old believers in maturity. And we pray that you would restore anybody listening who feels like they've just been getting tired and distracted and cold, and that they would have a renewal and a refreshing, that today would be a, a, a day where things start fresh and you begin to remind them of the, the goodness of your love and of your power and the worthiness of Christ, that it is worth pressing on to that goal to know Christ in his resurrection above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.